Welcome to Missing Persons Uncovered. I'm Karen Shalev Green and I carry out research into missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. In this podcast, we seek to understand the complexities of a global issue. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a child protection expert, and across this series, Karen and I are talking to professionals to share insights into how we can all be more aware and take action to protect vulnerable people in our communities and families from going missing. In this episode, Caroline talks to retired Lieutenant Paul Bellet from Sacramento, California. We often see from TV shows how missing person cases can turn into homicides, but Paul will explain to us the reality and complexity of how these are actually interlinked. In the US, between 20,000 to 25,000 homicides are registered every year. How do the police determine when a missing person is involved in a homicide? And how do they talk to families to ensure evidence can be used in prosecution? Paul has held numerous positions within the Homicide and Missing Persons Units, and today is the president of the International Homicide Investigators Association. My name is Paul Belli. I'm a retired lieutenant from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office in Sacramento, California. I was there for approximately 24 years. And during that time, I was fortunate enough to work a number of assignments with patrol and corrections and detectives. I spent about seven years as a homicide detective, about three years as a supervisor in the Homicide Bureau, and also with missing persons as part of my purview. And then promoted to lieutenant, and then ultimately finished my career back in investigations as the lieutenant or assistant commander for our investigations division start with the basics of how would you define a homicide or what is the definition? Is there a universal definition? Yes, there is. Essentially, a homicide is the death of an individual at the hands of another. That doesn't always mean it's criminal in nature. You can have justified homicides. Uh, Obviously, we see where somebody's protecting themselves or something along, uh, along those lines. You can have manslaughter, and then obviously murder. And really what you're looking at there is various levels of culpability for that death and what intent was occurring during the time of the murder and leading up to it. So that that is really what plays into what your prosecutors use with regards to charging decisions. I know you work with the International Homicide Investigation Association. You're the president there. So Working with other nations and other countries, have you seen different kinds of interpretation? For the definition, no, but I think there's all kinds of different interpretations of the actual charging of the crimes, what their culture considers a murder or or whether it's going to be a homicide where you've got significant intent and you're looking at a life case or, you know, something along those lines. But Mm -hmm. the actual just straight definition would be the same. Unfortunately, as we have mentioned in series one, there is no universal definition for missing persons. So how can police officers determine when a missing person becomes a homicide investigation? That is a very complex, (laughs) there's no simple answer. I guess if I were to boil it down to something, it's this. For our missing persons detectives, they get hundreds of missing person reports on a daily basis. There's a lot of circumstances. Clearly, there, you know, there's like 600,000 
missing person cases a year, right? That get reported. And there's about 24,000 homicides that occur each year. So not every missing person case obviously boils down to a murder or some sort of death or something along those lines. Sometimes it's suicide. Sometimes it's not. You're boiling all that down, but what you're really doing is you're looking at, okay, what are the circumstances? What's contained within this report? And that's where the skill of the detective really comes in. And even in our agency, we utilized volunteers to assist civilian volunteers and some retired law enforcement folks that would come back and volunteer to triage those missing person cases, just because there's such a high volume, 100 to 150 missing person cases every day when that detective walked in the door, right? And they left at five the previous day and they came back at seven. And so you're talking about all those things that were generated within a 24-hour period. It's But luckily, not all of them are a dire or crisis type case. They are always a crisis for the families. And I think that all of our detectives and volunteers are very well aware of that. And you have to treat it as such. And, and they had a lot of passion for it. And of course, mm -hmm. we jump immediately to foul play of some kind. So mm -hmm. it does take a lot of care and concern to really look at those cases and figure out, okay, well, what's going on? And one of the things actually, when I used to do missing persons training around the world, one of the things we talked about is that even though the volume of missing person cases is huge, you should treat each one as if it's the worst case that you have in front of you. That could be homicide or, or other, other crime related. So is that still the case? Of, of, is that how you would teach? Yeah, absolutely. And that really starts with, it starts in patrol. You know, none of my cases were ever built by myself, always have a first responder. And we do a very good job of training our police officers throughout the world about, they take a lot of missing persons reports. So they get very good at looking at the case itself, looking at the circumstances. Hey, where are we at? You know, what is the family telling me? Does this appear to be a voluntary missing adult, right? Is this a at-risk missing? So when you look at like laws, every agency will have policy related to what differentiates the two and then your response as such, right? If you've got a at-risk missing person, somebody say that 13 years old and younger, your response and patrol is very significant. You're starting searches, you're doing a lot of those things. And now with social media, you're looking for profiles. There's a lot to be done, video, all those things. And then hopefully you have air support and dogs mm -hmm. and all of that. That goes into older individuals or, you know, individuals with a mental capacity that would make them at risk or, or medications that make them at risk uh, or maybe ideations of suicide, something along those lines. I wonder once you set up an incident room and you're doing the searches, do you automatically have a person in the team that looks at the possibility of a homicide? So you said you've got volunteers that determine if this could be a homicide. It is. There's a couple ways the incidents come to us. If it comes to us just in a report because the responding patrol officer really didn't have enough information to say, hey, this could be foul play. So it's just a report. Those still get looked at on the back end by the detective and the volunteers. Did we do everything we needed to do on that particular case? 
are there unanswered questions that we need to do some follow-up on that might then make it rise to that level of, okay, we need further and further investigation. Or the other way they come in is the patrol officer gets the information and is like, okay, I'm calling a detective right now. So then the detectives are involved very early on in those types of cases. And it's difficult for me to explain, I guess, how you know, because sometimes you get cases that really there isn't just much information, but there's just something different. Very commonly, it's you have to do your victimology. Who is this individual? Are they normally a flighty person, I guess you might say, where they're not checking in all the time, or they tend to be spontaneous and they just take off for a weekend, you know, those kinds of things. You, you get that investigative sense. In my eight years of patrol time, I responded to hundreds of missing persons calls. And you got pretty good at figuring out, okay, well, this one's, this one really needs a little more work than what I can do as a patrol officer. I'm going to do all the initial stuff, but then bringing in the detectives and the other resources available to you, search and rescue, all of those things that come with that air units. Now with the, the drone teams, or I should say UAV teams, I don't like the word drone, but all of that becomes pretty much born right out of that initial contact. We know that not all missing persons come home right away and that the police have open, long-term cases. Paul explains how long-term missing person cases do not necessarily become homicides, and how each case is unique. It doesn't change how you investigate it. Long-term missing cases, while they may not get labeled as a homicide right out of the gate for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is what information do you have to say that this was a murder, right? And I think we also have to look back at where we are today with our cases and our technology is obviously significantly more advanced than what they had 40 years ago. So those cases that you have as a, as a long-term missing case, those get work just like a homicide. <laughs> I mean, they really do. If you've got a 14-year-old that's missing you're gathering a lot of information related to that. And now we just have a lot of information we can gather. So you would think that you'd be able to figure out every one of them, but that's not always the case. You know, it takes a lot of resources to, to find that. So when, when, when you talk about a long-term missing, those don't just get shoved to the back, but even in today's technological society where you think you would know everything about everybody or be able to get that information, it's not always there. So those cases essentially stay on a caseload. They stay open. They remain open. No different than an open homicide where you haven't determined who it is. And really, you know, without something that specifically points you to the fact that this might be a homicide, so it's going to be very difficult yeah. to continue that or to label that as a murder. I guess similar to a missing persons case, you only close a homicide once you know who did it. So homicides can get closed a couple of ways. One can be you've investigated it and you've submitted it to the DA's office and they've made a charging decision. Sometimes the decision is not to charge <laughs> and it closes that case. It could also be that you just don't have enough evidence to go to trial. So that case remains open, even though you know, or you have a, not know, you have a very good idea that this is the individual who committed that crime. And I have 
a few cases that I left behind knowing who likely committed that murder and never having enough to actually charge that, that crime. So those still remain open because you never know in 10 years, maybe there's a technology advancement that can now forensically assist in that case, or somebody comes forward. I, I had a case I inherited when I first went to homicide where an individual was murdered inside his home. There were some weird circumstances around surrounding the same night that he was likely murdered, which was a police chase and a car crash near his house and suspects running and, and all of that. So that obviously became a big focus in the, in the crime. Let's, let's recreate this, figure out if one of these folks in that car did this as a means of getting away and got discovered inside his home. Well, then fast forward four years, an individual walks into our station and says, hey, I wanted I want to report a lethal contact and subsequently confesses to that crime. And that type of thing, you have to really be worried about like a false confession. So right. the way you take that statement is, is very little information to this, to the individual saying this, he's the one or she's the one who has to provide all the info. So that case remained open, completely unrelated to the car crash. It's just one of those things that just happens, right? And and we would have not, and we would did not have any information related to that individual within that case. So I feel fortunate he walked in. In the U.S., around 600,000 people go missing and about 24,000 homicides are reported every year. Paul shares the importance of analyzing information to determine the risk of the missing person and the importance of reporting. A child gone missing is is very significant. So the, the first thing you're going to do is look at that case. Do we have child custody issues where both the parents, other caregivers, you know, things of that nature that may explain the missing and barring those and not, not always barring it because you do have, unfortunately, parents who kidnap and kill their own children. But if you fleshed out everything related to the parents, like, okay, well, this isn't it, or other caregivers, family members, things of that nature. Now, where are we at? I would say that every child that is missing in a suspicious manner, because there's plenty of kids that run away and it's very evident they ran away, mm -hmm. can certainly result in, in a murder or other violent crimes, whether it's against them or else. It didn't really start as a missing persons case. It actually started as a homicide investigation with a 12-year-old that was located near her school deceased. It was very obvious it was a murder just based on the scene and, and injuries of that nature. Well, we later came to find out that one of the big misconceptions in missing persons cases is people think because of what the TV has told them dating back 50 years that you have to wait 24 hours, you know, things of that nature to report somebody missing. And, and that's part of what the part of the reason why we have this podcast is, is actually to dispel this. And, and we've talked about it in many episodes around the need to educate the, the media and the public around don't wait 24 hours or 48 hours before you report a person missing, regardless of child or adult, because the longer you wait, the less likely of finding the person alive. As part of homicide investigations, it is also important to talk to the family. As Paul explains, they may have vital information that can help identify a possible suspect and help explain who the victim was. I don't have anything other than anecdotal evidence of this, but the numbers of obviously you got a number of say 24, 25,000 homicides a year. You know, you can 
probably think that about 35 to 40% of those are likely family related, whether that's Mm -hmm. domestic violence or, you know, unfortunately a child death, they unfortunately die at the hands of a caregiver at a much higher percentage than an unknown. You know, obviously you're going to have some of your your drive-bys and things of that nature. But even those cases, if you're talking about a gang type case, there's usually a fair amount of information out there. You just got to listen to kind of what the neighborhoods are telling you and probably come up with a pretty good idea of, you know, who likely did that. Now, proving that is a much, much harder thing, but you're going to have a pretty good idea of, of kind of what happened. So those aren't necessarily whodunits either. And I guess that's a similarity with missing person cases or kidnapping or abductions. It's usually someone that the person knows. It, the, the stranger abductions are, are very rare, at least in the U.S. You know, so it, it's sort of similarities with homicides of saying, look, look at the people that know the person before yeah. broadening out into the rest of the society. In a way. Absolutely. And you're doing that for a number of reasons. You know, you have to obviously include and exclude suspects. So now you have to look at, okay, what's the victimology of this individual? All right. You know, what would have gotten them murdered? Were they engaged in some behavior that makes them a little bit more at risk? Were they, did they have instances of domestic violence? I mean, where are we at with this? And you don't just immediately because somebody's wife is, you know, found deceased or goes missing oh my God, the husband absolutely did it. Well, no, but the the likelihood is a little higher just when you look at the numbers. So you have to figure that out, rule them in. I, I know that families don't find that to be a particularly comfortable thing. It's not comfortable for the officers either, but that is their job. You need to figure out where you're at so that you can actually get to the right person. And, and I, the way that I always approached it is, well, I'm going to... In, if I believe somebody is a suspect in my case, I'm going to go about my investigation in the mindset of I'm going to prove them innocent. And if at the end of the day, I can't do that, then they are likely my suspect. And that keeps you from settling on somebody that sure looks good, that may not actually be the person. Now you mm-hmm. have that confirmation bias that people talk about. So you start to gather some information and maybe you gather some evidence. And, you know, if you just look at that person, that's my suspect, you may overlook something or you may look mm-hmm. at something and interpret it incorrectly. I think most of your investigators out there, whether they recognize that that's what they're doing or not, that's what they're doing. Paul further explains how his detectives treat a family when they are not sure who a potential suspect could be and the importance of having a family liaison officer to navigate the difficult and emotional conversations. That's a very difficult thing to do. And I would say that it's really, it is really case by case. Obviously, you have to remain objective in all of these cases. So you're going to be fairly objective with the family. And we also know that as detectives, we don't want to provide too much information to anybody because it could jeopardize the case. Even if you don't think the family is involved, you don't always share information with them just in the event that they say something to somebody who knows something. You know, the Sacramento region is like 1.5 million people and it's a pretty good size, you know, area. It's amazing to me how many people know people. I mean, you know, the, the six degrees of separation, you know, they do, it, it is, 
as big as towns are, they're super small as well, especially with social media. So you, having that, you, you do have to worry about it because at the end of the day, you have to also provide a prosecutable case. It's a push and pull within you to want to give this family as much information as possible, but also knowing you have to hold that back. I remember one of our cases that started as a missing persons. And essentially, I, as the supervisor, I got a call from a chief of a college police department saying, hey, are you aware of this missing person case that, that is all over Facebook right now? And it happened to be a, a student at that, that school. And I, I wasn't, right? I go to my missing persons detective and he goes, yeah, I just got that recorded. It's a little weird. So we start working that. And within a very short period of time, her car is located in an area where it shouldn't be. She's nowhere to be found. And then all of a sudden, a roommate of hers shows up where this vehicle is found. Obviously, that makes you wonder, like, okay, well, mm -hmm. how did they get there? We later determined that he had gotten the information from somebody that said, hey, we're working on this or whatever. He, he was our suspect. He had killed her, which we eventually developed all of the evidence to do that. But one of the things that we had to do was we had the family of, of our victim who we had not located yet. They are in our office and they're in a room along with who we are starting to really look at as a suspect. And you can't tell the family that right away because you just don't really truly know. I do. We didn't have the evidence. About six or eight hours into that investigation, that family was in, in the room with the suspect for quite some time. And we decided to kind of take a little bit of a gamble and we pull, pulled the family out and we said, Hey, listen, we think he is your the suspect. What we wanted them to do was stay in the room with him. And we were, the gamble is, are they number one? I, I, I hated putting them in that position, but we also still hadn't found their loved one yet. And we needed him to the suspect to remain at the office and compliant and voluntarily. We would have never, we, he was always free to leave. We, we wouldn't have yeah. held him there or anything like that. But, you know, obviously enlisting the help of the family, that's a very, that's a 50-50 on how well that goes. And in our case, it worked out beautifully. They did a phenomenal job. And like I said, we all felt very bad for, for doing that to them. It worked out as about as good as it possibly could. She was already deceased at that time. There was nothing we could have done to prevent that, but it gave us the time we needed to develop our information. And ultimately, we ended up finding her about about three days later, talking to families, it's always a, you have to be, you're that objective individual. You may feel for them. You, you have the same feelings about, you know, what they're going through, but you don't get the luxury of that. In some countries, they use family liaison officers that are trained specifically to be the point of contact for the family so that they have one person to talk to while you as investigators can work the case. We, I think we'll be getting to that point in, in the U.S., but again, it's a resource management thing. So what we would always do within our teams is one of the detectives became that point of contact so that the they were the ones that were providing the information back and forth and the other detectives didn't have to worry about that. We used to provide a, a pamphlet of, you know, the, the most common question. 
who to talk to and where, you know, what's the process and why are we doing what we're doing? And, and that actually helped go a long ways. I know in, in our county, our coroner's office was awesome as well. They very commonly would do the death notifications. We didn't always do them as detectives unless it was very necessary to advance the case or we needed that information immediately. So they have a lot of training with that. They have a lot of experience with death notifications as well. You know, obviously they're not just doing homicides, they're doing all manners. And so that's another great resource if you don't have a family liaison. Think about the folks in your community that have that ability. We would always offer chaplains, Mm -hmm. law enforcement chaplains, and obviously they deal a lot with that side of life. You have to find the right person that can relate or have a conversation with the family and build the trust so that you can get the information that's needed. At the same time as building the trust with them, knowing that you do you're doing everything that you can. I've had situations where, uh, you know, just personality wise, the family and I didn't really hit it off very well. <laughs> so it's a difficult situation for them. It's the probably the worst day that they've experienced in a very long time. So it's understandable. I, you can take that step back. I would switch my partner. Maybe they had a better chemistry between them. That was the beauty of our department and the, the way we had our teams. We had somebody on that team that was likely going to fit with just about anything mm-hmm. that came across. So that, that worked out. Paul expands further on what kind of resources are available for families and how police collaborate to help improve their response. Most gays offices have a victim advocacy group as well. I know we had a very progressive DA's office related to that. So we had a number of victim advocates that were available to the families. I would go speak periodically at a victim family meetings, Mm -hmm. kind of share my experiences and, and try to get more information. And they have facilitated meetings with the families, you know, to so that we can provide more information to them. I know within my own agency, we've offered to come in and ask the detectives questions and get a better sense of kind of what's occurring. That's typically unsolved cases. There's only so much information you can share. As detectives, we tend to hold everything as close to the chest as we possibly can. And it's not uncommon for us to not want to say anything about anything. And yet we could probably provide a little bit more information. Each case is different. In each case, you have to look at it from scratch, from the beginning, and treat it as an individual case. Even though there are best practices, you have to look at it with the circumstances involved. Absolutely. Everything you gather throughout these, there has to be some context to it. All I can say is that I know that that some people end up unhappy with, with the process, and I fully understand that. But there are ways to maybe get some answers to that. And I I think that the professionalism within law enforcement as a whole, they understand that probably better now than they did maybe when I started. So I I think we're getting better, but the only way to really get better is to to really get the, the information and maybe feedback from the folks that we serve, good and bad, right? I mean, I know that very commonly, if it's a bad experience, people are calling. Sometimes that good that good experience, you learn a lot from that as well, because they'll say something to the officer about, hey, I really appreciated that you did this. That reinforces them doing that in the future. Paul has talked about his experience in California, 
but he is also the president of the International Homicide Investigators Association, which is a worldwide network. We are all over the world. We have members everywhere. Obviously, our largest presence is here within the United States and Canada. But in my time with them, we have been involved in the initial phases of NamUs back in the early 2000s. Incredible program. And probably the biggest thing that we offer to our members is uh, if you need to talk to somebody in any one of the states or internationally in a different country, we likely have somebody that's a member that you can mm -hmm. pick up the phone and call. So the membership is huge. We also facilitate courses throughout the United States, basic and advanced homicide, child death investigations, mass casualty investigations. And then also we've taught internationally for a DOJ-sponsored training in Bogota, Colombia. And that had a component of not only missing persons investigations, but also cold case homicides where they're locating bodies and things of that nature. You know, obviously they've had their the unrest and the, and the, the crimes related to narco trafficking or or even some of their terrorist groups that have killed people. So they're they're working through all of that. We also will continue to provide that type of training elsewhere throughout the world through that same group. We do it newsletter that goes out internationally. Every year we have a symposium where we always try to locate an international homicide case and then have that presented to our group. The way that they're worked throughout the world is, I think there's always the best practices that are always the same, but how they have to navigate their justice system and, and their investigations is sometimes different, sometimes markedly different. You're like, wow, I didn't even know that. So so really it's an idea exchange and it's beautiful when it's in person and people can talk and mm -hmm. you learn, just learn a lot of those things. So that's our main outreach is, is through the training throughout the U.S. and now internationally. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. And thank you, Paul, for sharing your vast experience in homicides. When a person goes missing, we cannot automatically assume it could be a homicide. However, it is important for family and police to work together to ensure all scenarios can be looked at. If you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mention in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. And if you have any questions you would like us to answer or thoughts on topics you would like us to discuss, please contact us through the website if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or a national charity. If you are enjoying this podcast and discussion, please help support us by buying us a coffee through missingpersonsuncovered.com. I'm Karen Shalev-Green. And I'm Caroline Humer. Thank you for listening and join us next time when we talk to Galich Shimshon Drazen about the interlink between mental health and missing persons.